Rising Friday. Emily, I had said that I wouldn't be here this week, but I just like to keep you and the viewers on their toes. Surprise! <laughs> here I am. Wait, what do we have today? So Emily Kopp is back with more of her fantastic reporting on a key virologist with ties to EcoHealth Alliance that tried to kill the lab leak theory. And Jordan Sheridan discusses why Governor Rick Snyder is walking away scot-free in the Flint water crisis scandal. And we'll hear from a reporter on the national strike in Ecuador. But first, the Supreme Court ruled this week that the Biden administration can end the Trump era remain in Mexico policy, which required either jailing asylum applicants from Central America or denying them entry to the U.S. until their cases are resolved. The Hills' Rafael Bernal joins us now to discuss the future of the remain in Mexico policy. Rafael, thanks so much for joining us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. All right, let's start off just with some clarification between Remain in Mexico and Title 42. Uh, people are confused, I think, about which, what each one does differently. So could you just sort of clarify <clears throat> what the difference is? They're totally different things, but it, what is the difference between Title 42 and Remain in Mexico? It is confusing. They're pretty much sister programs. The, uh, the Trump administration first put in Remain in Mexico to prevent allowing asylum seekers or potential asylum seekers into the country while they awaited their uh, their turn in, in immigration court. Um, later, when the pandemic came along, to prevent even more asylum seekers from coming in or, or from requesting asylum and staying in the United States, the Trump administration put in Title 42, and that basically said, if you're caught at the border, you're a foreign national, you didn't have permission to be here ahead of time, um, there's a pandemic going on, we're going to expel you either to Mexico or to your home country, but we're not even going to process you. We're not even going to ask you if you're an asylum seeker. But fundamentally, both those programs were geared at having fewer people come into the country through what the Trump administration termed was the asylum loophole, a term that's, that obviously is not widely accepted. Right. And so and so where does this where does this leave us now? So, so remain in Mexico is is ruled unconstitutional by by five to four. And so Title 42, is that just dependent on CDC guidance or where where are we? Where are we now? Like if, well, if Title gonna, 42. Yeah, yeah t- Title 42 is still the end of Title 42 is still blocked by the court. So the, the Biden administration is forced to continue implementing Title 42 the way until yesterday it was forced to continue implementing Remain in Mexico. A key difference, however, is Remain in Mexico depends on an agreement with Mexico. So it, it jumps into foreign policy. So the court said, you know, courts can't be telling the executive how to conduct foreign policy. That was number one. And number two, the court's reading of immigration law was that the administration has has actually a wide range of options. They don't have to jail everybody who's pending an asylum case. They don't have to expel anybody who wants who wants asylum. They but they can do these things. So broadly, I would say this ruling is a win for executive powers over foreign policy and over immigration policy. 
That's a, that is a really good way to put it. Um, and it ended up before the Supreme Court because states sued when the Biden administration sought to get rid of Remain in Mexico. And now Justice Kavanaugh wrote actually that it hadn't been used uh, that often, that there weren't that many cases that came to be over the course of the Trump administration. Can you talk to us about the accuracy of that? How did this actually sort of play out over the course of the Trump administration? Asylum, people might not realize, is a very narrow legal category. Um, and, and so it's, it's all very complicated. But what did this actually look like in practice? At, at some point, there were 70,000 people subjected to the program. So these are people um, necessarily from the so-called Northern Triangle, Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, who came through Mexico, asked the United States for asylum, said they had a fear of returning to their countries, and then basically got plopped back over in, into Mexican border cities. Now, there are, there are parts of Mexico that are perfectly safe, but the border cities are not it. So these people with, less, with fewer resources, they're poor, they wouldn't be coming unless they were, they were poor, disadvantaged, and afraid. Um, they, were, they were put in these cities that are dangerous. They started creating these migrant camps, basically had no other option but to create sort of refugee camps in North America. That is something you had never seen historically. And it was, frankly, it was very dangerous. There was a lot of, there was a lot of crime against them, against these migrants. There were, there were murders, there, there was definitely a lot of sexual assault in these camps. And, and there wasn't any, there wasn't good policing on the part of Mexican authorities who were sort of forced into this option by the Trump administration's threats, uh, sort of economic threats for them to cooperate on, on migration. So it was a bad humanitarian situation. Yes, it was only 70,000 out of, say, a million people, uh, or, you know, I'm, I'm throwing that number out. So a relatively small proportion of people, but there was a humanitarian crisis detonated by Remain in Mexico. And so help me out, why is Title 42 allowed to stay in place? Not just allowed to stay in place, but why is the Biden administration required to continue to carry out a Trump-era policy you know, if they're not required to carry out the other similar Trump-era policy and if the executive has this discretion that we're talking about? Why connect well, those basically dots because, Basically because Title 42 hasn't made it to the Supreme Court. Yeah. There's a little bit of Remain in Mexico that's also in the Title 42 case, the administrative part. Did the Biden administration wind down that policy correctly. And that's really, did they cross the T's and dot the I's and file the proper paperwork? And that hasn't been decided in Remain in Mexico. Uh, that, that's going back to the lower courts, but that's really not gonna affect the policy. That also hasn't been decided in Title 42. And in Title 42, there's, there's a broader, a broader de decision to be made about whether the Biden administration correctly removed the uh, sort of the pandemic era, the, the CDC order that allowed DHS to implement this, this immigration policy. Let's remember Title 42 on its face was a public health policy, not an immigration policy. So it's really, the difference comes down to legalese. I guess la last thing on this, and then we're gonna move to the EPA versus West Virginia case. What is the, what is the practical implication of this? Because often you see like a big news item like this, and then you see events down the road, and you say, well, wow, 
this is all because of what the Supreme Court just did with X. You're like, mm, not, not so sure that that actually is, is connected. So how, how much real impact on, on the United States are we going to see as a result of this ruling? Most likely none. But there is the possibility that this ruling gets turned into disinformation mm -hmm. and, and, and the smugglers have been very good at spinning, whether it's a Trump administration policy making the, the border harder to cross and then they say, oh, now you really need my services if you want to go to the United States. So they, they grow their business, whether it's a Biden administration policy ta taking away a, a Trump administration policy. And then they say, look, now it's really easy for me to get you in the United States. And then they grow their business. The fact is the smugglers will spin any news on immigration to their benefit and to grow their business. So. Basically, any movement on immigration to one direction or the other, they know how to benefit out of it. Right. So that, I mean, that is that is going to be a consistent issue until the smugglers are attacked somehow themselves. Absolutely. No question about it. Thank you so much for joining us, Rafael. Glad to be here. Really appreciate it. Well, as Ryan said, uh, we're not just talking about this particular case. We are going to turn to another ruling from yesterday. But before we do that, I want to add the point exactly to what Rafael just said, is that if you talk to migrants, the reason they are huddled in those border towns um, is because they're so, they really are so desperate. They don't necessarily qualify for the very legal, narrow legal quality category of asylum, but they are so desperate because they're caught in this judicial tug of war, this judicial back and forth. They know that if something changes, they want to be, they, they literally will say right. this, we want to be the first people in. They will huddle next to the bridge itself. Like we talked right. to a bunch of Haitians huddling next to the bridge itself. And we have a, at the Federalist, we have a documentary coming out on this. And I think we have some footage of that um, that we might be able to roll. But if you talk to them, we have all of them saying this, like they want to physically be close to mm -hmm. it because as the minute uh, the Supreme Court decides one thing or the minute a lower court decides another, they know that sometimes there's there's openings. Right. And I and I I'm sure to Raphael's very good point about the disin disinformation networks. I bet WhatsApp just lit up. Yes. All throughout Central America yesterday with with kind of twisted news that the Supreme Court had basically opened up the borders mm -hmm. because if you're a if you're a coyote, you're a smuggler. Like that's what you want to tell people. Like now is now is the time to go. And, exactly. And you might even add, look, Trump uh, wants to run for president again. Uh, so your your opportunity to get in now. And as a result, you're going to pay me double. Yeah. Because now is the now is the, now is the time to come. Uh, so I th I think he's right, and you're you're right. But if it goes the other way, if the Supreme Court had ruled the other direction, he's they'd they'd come up with some other spin. Yes. It's saying, a like you got to hurry now before they implement this and before this and that and other things. So come right now and right and then they and then you just get massive refugee camps it's, along it's, the border. Yes, and it's marketing for their business. Um, and it's it's interesting that uh, Rafael used the term refugee camps because it's exactly what it is. When we stepped into one of them, my colleague was like, okay, so this is this is a refugee camp. It's exactly what it looks like. You can see that in the footage. Um, but that is the, the, the cartels absolutely exploit this judicial yeah. back and forth and this confusion. Um, and the information travels down. And also, when people do get in, the information that they did get in, it's, it might just be one person right. who was able to hire, hire a lawyer or who did cross the river successfully, et cetera, et cetera. But that travels to many, many more people. That one person did get in, 
so it's worth a shot. Is how they that's the sort of cost benefit they make. And there's some interesting contrasts between this one and the and the EPA case. Uh, there, the, the this case was five to four with Alito kind of in the lead on the dissent, and he argues that even though, even though as Robert says in the majority opinion that the word may is crucial to this, mm-hmm. that the DHS may do X, Y, and Z. That means the DHS has discretion. It's not required by statute to do any particular different thing within its mandate. Alito says, no, it, it really should. And if, if Alito had one more vote, he would have said, no, Department of Homeland Security has no discretion. It's, it's told by Congress that it's going to do and it's told by the former Trump administration it's going to put this remain in Mexico place, so therefore it has to move these people into Mexico. In the EPA case, uh, the, the Environmental Protection Act, the Clean Water Act, all, you know, all these others are, are quite clear about what the statute is saying. The statute mm-hmm. is saying air pollutants are an existential threat to uh, the people, people living in the United States. Right. And therefore... The EPA is empowered to devise systems in order to, regulatory systems in order to bring those air pollutants down within, you know, acceptable levels. Uh, EPA, you know, has, and then there's a, the Air Quality Act, you know, Clean, Clean Water Act, a bunch of other, you know, ratifying and expanding acts over the time. And each time that Congress appropriates money for the EPA, they're essentially ratifying their earlier mission. So for 50 years, Congress has been saying this is the goal of the EPA. This is what we want the EPA to do. But you have the majority this time saying, well, no, actually, we don't want them to do that. So on the one hand, DHS is required by this reasoning to carry out a mission. On the other hand, EPA is not allowed to carry out the very specific mission that Congress gave it unless Congress passes a brand new law that says, no, 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 all the things that we said before that we wanted to do, we really meant that. Like, you really have to do that, uh, which seems to me a, that they've given up even trying to be consistent about the stuff, that it's all results-oriented mm-hmm. and then working backwards from there. Well, I think that's generally a problem with our, our Supreme Court these mm-hmm. days anyway. But I would say uh, that th- this is a really interesting excerpt from Justice Kagan's uh, dissent in the EPA case. She said, Members of Congress often don't know enough and know they don't know enough to regulate sensibly on an issue. And then she continues, members of Congress often can't know enough and again, (laughs) know they can't to keep regulatory schemes working across time. And I think what she's getting at there is sort of the heart of the political divide um, in many, many ways over the scope of government, the scope of the administrative state, the federal government. um, Because if you have something like the EPA, I think the conservative justices were saying, this is such a dramatic policy that you need to have congressional authority in order to carry it out legally. But what Justice Kagan is saying is this exists, this massive regulatory agency exists to regulate. That's how. That's why it exists. Um, and the conservative justices are getting at this idea that I think kind of, we've talked about this before, it actually kind of cuts at the foundation of the administrative oh, yeah. state. Um, I forget what case we were talking about last year, but it was- It was about the SEC and I think the Fifth Circuit. Right. Where they basically said the SEC isn't constitutional. It's illegitimate, yeah, it's constitutionally it's illegitimate. three judges in the, in the Fifth Circuit, right. Yeah, different than the Supreme right. Court, of course. But um, I, I actually think this case really got at that too, um, is that like if it is not an enumerated power for the EPA, then Congress must enumerate right. the power in order for the EPA to exercise it. 
Right, and the way that the EPA is designed is it says, okay, at the time of the creation, we know about these air pollutants. These are a problem. But the EPA is also empowered to identify through these processes new air pollutants. And there's, there are checks and balances on that. They had to go Massachusetts first EPA or whatever it was. Um, there was a Supreme Court case that said, okay, yes, carbon dioxide does count as an air pollutant. This is courts, the courts affirmed that. I think a lot of people on the right might be like, well, you know what, screw the EPA, fine. <laughs> A lot. So let's try to take a different one. Say the Federal Reserve. Now sure. you've got the Ron Paul crowd who's going to be like, yeah, that's right. Fed, the Fed is yeah, unconstitutional. That's right. <laughs> Ron Paul crowd aside, the Federal Reserve established in what, 1914 and given a mandate. And then in the 1970s, it's given this dual mandate. Its, it's dual mandate is to uh, do you know, full employment and to keep price stability. And the, this new Supreme Court idea would suggest that Every time there's kind of a new economic circumstance, let's say a pandemic. Or immigration circumstance. Or an immigration circumstance. Or a shipping crisis, you know, where you're getting bottlenecks. And, you know, this, and so the types of inflation and the types of employment issues or automation are different than in 1914 when the Federal Reserve was created. You'd have people saying, well, the Federal Reserve's interest rate hike here, or their quantitative easing, or their or their repro buybacks, or whatever program that they're doing to meet their mission of full employment and price stability is unconstitutional because these members of Congress in 1914 didn't foresee that we'd have a pandemic, not just in 1919, but again in 2020, or they didn't foresee that we'd have a, a shipping crisis at the same, you know, that, that coincided with the pandemic, uh, or a supply chain crisis, or we, or the concentration of, of purchasing power on the internet. So, mm -hmm. they'd, you know, so they'd say, well, now Congress has to write brand new Federal Reserve Acts, like mm -hmm. brand new laws, every time that the Federal Reserve has to confront new economic circumstances that it hasn't precisely dealt with in the past. And that is just a recipe for an ungovernable society, which I think is actually the goal of a the kind of Lochner era element here, that they don't want the government to be able to govern. <laughs> well, here's a relevant excerpt from Alito's dissent in the Remain in Mexico case. He says, due to the huge numbers of aliens who attempt to enter illegally from Mexico, DHS does not have the capacity to detain uh, all inadmissible aliens encountered at the border. And no one suggests that DHS must do the impossible, but rather than avail itself of Congress's clear statutory alternative to return inadmissible aliens to Mexico while they await proceedings in this country, DHS has concluded it, that it may forego the option altogether and instead simply release into this country untold numbers. Um, and yeah, so as you can say, he then continues, this practice right. violates the clear terms of the law, but the court looks the other way. And I think it's mentioning Ron Paul and the Federal Reserve is extremely interesting in this context because I think probably um, there's a good argument that in a, a narrow originalist interpretation of the Constitution, that is completely correct. The Ron Paul take on the Fed is completely correct. And in a very narrow um, originalist interpretation of the Constitution, it is very difficult to see how a, a massive organization like the EPA, which in a country that is high tech and globalized and interconnected in a way now that it wasn't then, in a way that like air pollution is, is something that like we have to have international cooperation with in order to make a dent in it. It's not as though states can really regulate that in a way that doesn't 
affect the whole country. Um, so yes, I mean, it's, it's just very difficult to build that on a proper constitutional foundation. And I think um, you still, you, you very much, that's, that's what's revealed in, in these arguments. Although not that hard. So it's, it's definitely true that you can find people who were around at the time of the founding, mm -hmm. Madison, let's say, Monroe, uh, who would say, yeah, no, none of this is legit. But you could also find people like Hamilton, yes. who was yep. another co-author of the Constitution and the Federalist Papers, who's like, who would, who would, if he were alive today, he'd be like, of course the Federal Reserve oh, is yeah. good. EPA is good. All of these, all things are good. There's this great letter between, I think it's Madison Mon and Monroe, uh, complaining about how uh, Hamilton is starting to like build canals. Yes. He's starting to fund canals under a, what maybe was a general welfare uh, clause. And, and, and Madison's like, the federal government funding like canal projects? We can, this, is, this is an outrageous expansion. So who's the originalist? Is it Hamilton or is it, is it Madison? Yes. And Hamilton's like, are you insane? How are we going to have a country if we don't build canals? How are you going to get to Erie? Imagine, there? imagine explaining gain-of-function research to Madison. <laughs> Madison, be like, he, Madison would be like, hey, whatever anybody wants to do, they just do. Right. You know, can't have laws. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah, but they, like, it's, it's absolutely true. And I, I think the, the originalist interpretation as it's been adopted on the right is obviously Madisonian. Right. They want to go to particular people at the time. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah I, I think that's true. Um, and the argument would be that those Imagine particular... Hamilton coming back and being like, wait, originalist as in me? Like, I was, I was there, and you all are completely wrong about this. Although, I mean, Hamilton wasn't exactly... It, it's, it is very hard, and this is what people like Kagan and Sotomayor get at. It is very hard to apply some of the writings to what we look at. Now, if you t are talking about things like air pollutants that are post-industrial and are not only across state lines, but across international borders in ways that really matter, um, really, really matter. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that conversation is inappropriately, like lacks the nuance that it probably needs, um, but it, it is very difficult to sort of go back and think about how you could even apply a lot of that. Right, and I think they're not even really trying. They're just, they just have, they don't like the EPA and they're like, what, what, what grounds can we use to undo this? You know, it's an interesting question because it, it goes to what we do about the Supreme Court period. Like a lot of people on the left say, well, there's nothing about nine justices. Let's pack the court. Let's do this, this and this. And I still think that the wisdom of the founding documents is the balances of the system. Um, and that, I think, it's not a limited government necessarily or a, a big government thing. It's a balanced government. Um, but it's getting thrown wildly out of balance. I think there's an argument for that. Yeah. And I think actually part of the argument, I, I would say like the, the uh, use of a lot of these policies at the border is uh, a good example of that. I would say we still have the AUMF that was authorized after 9-11. I mean, it's being abused in, in different directions because we're so wildly off course. Yeah, headed right for the ditch. <laughs> yes. Well, on that just happy, characteristically <laughs> rising Friday's Ryan Grimm note, we will tell you what's on our radars next. Emily, what's on your radar? 
Well, I know I sound like a broken record, but it's always worth reiterating how truly bizarre this moment is in the course of human history. In the historical blink of an eye, we've gone from the printing press to TikTok, uh, from circulating books and pamphlets over years to circulating vivid footage in seconds. Odd as it sounds, even abortion, is, which is something that women have just about always sought, is helpfully examined through this lens. Last Thursday, America celebrated the 50th anniversary of Title IX. On Friday, Roe fell after 49 years. If you're under 30 like me, Roe may have felt untouchable, like it would always be with us, for better or worse. Both Title IX and Roe have long been considered foundational victories of the second wave feminist movement. Humans, though, have mostly never existed with the option to terminate unwanted pregnancies by swallowing prescription pills or visiting antiseptic doctor's offices. Whether you think that's progressive or regressive, we all agree it changed the way we have sex and form families. The left celebrates this as an equalizer, the right laments it. Here's one example, courtesy of Janet Yellen herself, circa 1996. In a paper co-authored with her husband for Brookings, Yellen analyzed the data on what happened after states began legalizing abortion throughout the 1960s and 1970s. Quote, we have found that the sudden increase in the availability of both abortion and contraception, we call it a reproductive technology shock, is deeply implicated in the increase in out-of-wedlock births. They wrote, adding, although many observers expected liberalized abortion and contraception to lead to fewer out-of-wedlock births, the opposite happened. Here's more, it's worth quoting in full. Women who were willing to get an abortion or who reliably used contraception no longer found it necessary to condition sexual relations on a promise of marriage in the event of pregnancy. But women who wanted children, who objected to abortion for moral or religious reasons, or who were unreliable in their use of contraception, found themselves pressured to participate in premarital sexual relations without being able to exact a promise of marriage in case of pregnancy. These women feared correctly that if they refused sexual relations, they risked losing their partners. Sexual activity without commitment was increasingly expected in premarital relationships. That last sentence is particularly important in this context. So is sex without commitment healthy for women? This, of course, is a separate question from whether abortion should be legal. Totally separate question. But it is relevant to the question of whether legalized abortion has created a healthy culture for women. University of California San Francisco magazine talked to psychiatry professor Dr. Luann Brezen Dean about oxytocin earlier this year. Quote, intimacy, cuddling, and sex can unleash it in anyone, but the extra estrogen and progesterone in female bodies encourage their brains to ratchet up their oxytocin, especially when they ovulate, the article noted, summarizing Brizendine's research. Compared to women, men may need two to three times more touch to maintain the same level of oxytocin. Brizendine said, quote, the male and female brain are much more alike than they are different, but our different hormones are specified by nature to make behavior differences. It's probably not politically correct to say this, she said, but it is biologically correct. All right, so abortion then contributed to the development of a sexual culture that benefited men and harmed women. A wrenching BuzzFeed article from last year was headlined, quote, these Gen Z women think sex positivity is overrated. Uneasiness with sex positivity is bubbling to the surface, especially in some Gen Z quarters, wrote the author. One 23-year-old rape victim told the outlet for this article that, quote, sex positivity now feels like a cross between a male conspiracy and a cynical marketing ploy. I really think it's overlord men somehow, she said. There's always a Don Draper behind it. Now, none of this is to say the second wave was entirely regressive. I'm personally grateful to it and probably here in some sense because of it as well. 
But the left really doesn't want to talk about how abortion allows male partners and bosses to exploit women. Why are corporations eagerly jumping at the opportunity to pay for their employees' abortions? Because it makes women more productive and efficient workers. We know this, by the way, because it explains part of the wage gap. These corporations are commodifying women's bodies and the left is celebrating it. Notice most of these corporations aren't jumping quite so eagerly to provide childcare, even though American women are having fewer children than they say they want. This is a culture in pursuit of sameness, but not equality. It's a culture that insists women's equality means they must overcome their womanhood working more than they want to, having more casual sex than they want to. Rapid changes to technology and social norms have turned us into the proverbial boiling frog, unable to realize the water is hot until we're scalded. Again, this is a separate question from whether abortion should be legal. I believe it takes a life and therefore violates the 14th Amendment and is wrong, but even if you disagree with that, I think it's worth considering whether abortion is essential to sexual equality or an obstacle to it. Ryan, you definitely disagreed with every single word that I just said, probably. But, um, and to be very, very clear, this is about consensual relationships. Everything I just said is about consensual relationships. I am curious what you think about corporations, though, because they have jumped at the opportunity to virtue signal that they are paying for out-of-state abortions, women's travel, et cetera. Is that not just for their bottom line? Is that not just for... Yeah, I think that part's pretty simple, that... They would rather have a worker who is coming to work and, and than one who is not, and they don't want to pay maternity leave. I think, right. it's, I think it probably is as simple as that. And also, they do want, you know, they, they do want to attract people who feel like their values are aligned. Mm-hmm. Uh, and certainly, most, most of these corporations that you're talking about are hiring college graduates. Yeah. And among college graduates, there's just there's very little question about whether or not this is a barbaric Supreme Court ruling. Right. Like, it's not even like, it's not one of these close questions. Um, but I, I, I saw that you kept talking about how these are you know, separate issues, but, I'm, but I'm, not, I'm not so sure they're separate. And so I, I think it's fair to say that sometimes, so we're talking about sexual liberation here, right? Yeah, basically. And, and so I think it's fair to say that certainly as it, it moves in different waves, you're going to find... You know, some women who say that it has gone too far and it has transformed into just pressure to have sex from men, like that men are just kind of, you know, exploiting these moments to pressure women, certainly. But that, that's, I think, on, on one level here. On a much deeper level, their sexual liberation and women's liberation generally are connected. And sexual repression and oppression and, and oppression of women have also been connected for hundreds of years. So if you compare... You know, where, where we were 150 years ago, 100 years ago, 150 years ago. Uh, and if you start to look at uh, mental health and opportunities for women, you will, you will find that no matter what kind of men- mental health issues or other you know, cultural crises you can identify today, kind of post-women's liberation, the situations then were uh, you know, much worse. For people. Domestic I mean, violence is a great Domestic example. violence. Yeah. Also, you know, so my first book, more than 10 years ago was about drug trends. And, and what I found was that women and, and housewives, um, and housewives are actually kind of a new, in, new invention because a lot of women worked a lot more in the 19th century mm-hmm. than they did in the middle of the 20th century, which we could get into. Uh, M- Mother's Little Helper, we all, we all know about that. That was not a, that was not a small thing. Like, yeah. 
the women, women were very, very heavily medicated, you know, through the through the forties, fifties, uh, and sixties. Before that, too, because uh, of the the monotony and the drudgery of the of the life that they were restricted to. Uh, it's where you get Betty for Dan, right? And you and then and you go and the further you go back, the further you find uh, women's women's aspirations curtailed. And one of the m- main mechanisms used to curtail those aspirations was sexual oppression. Absolutely, was, and so yeah, I think all of these things are are tied together, and it, and the end result, and like you said, you're here, yeah, out of the house. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't cook anybody breakfast this morning either. I just kept yeah. going. Well, it's interesting. You, you, the point you just made is totally correct. That women worked more actually in the 19th century than the 20th century, and this is the the culture that Marx emerged out of and Dickens emerged out of. This hyper industrializing culture where we don't think of any of this stuff as high tech anymore. But at the time, it really was, and it was really rapidly changing the way people lived. And that's where Marx starts talking about alienation, which I see echoes of in these corporations, like eagerly funding um, abortion but not childcare. And I think the point that you're making, though, is that these cultural norms post-sexual liberation are much healthier than they were before sexual mm-hmm. liberation. And I think there's absolutely merit to that. I, I do not disagree with that. Um, although I do think it's important for people who purport to represent women's interests to be honest about what women are, what women's actual preferences are. And I do think that there's this sort of capture of elite institutions um, by women who are not, who don't share the preferences of uh, other women or most women. And I I think that's a problem. I don't think it's been particularly helpful. Um, And millennials and Gen Z have had less sex and had sex later than boomers and Xers. And we know that, Um, but it's also a question of whether that's because uh, this proliferation of hardcore pornography and all of these different changes has made it frightening and very scary for young women to engage. Right. And preferences, in order for preferences to be real, they, there has to be freedom. Like there has to be ability totally. to choose between these different yeah. different options. And you know, without, without those, right, you get m- millions of people who are just, who have their, their lives just, you know, uh, cut, cut short and and cut down. Yeah, no, I, I do not disagree with that. And I know we disagree on the, the disagree hugely on this question of the legality of abortion. Um, but I do agree with you also that the, the culture that, that doesn't, that, that enables women to make choices freely is a good one. There's no question about that. There we go. All right, we found a, a sliver pro- of agreement here. You just said pro-choice. Did I? Yeah, choices. Uh, well, I am pro-choice, just not one particular choice. <laughs> All right. Well, Ryan, I'm looking forward to what's on your radar after this. Ryan, what's on your radar? Well, the reaction in Democratic circles to the reversal of Roe v. Wade has gone down two dramatically different tracks. On the one hand are the Democratic leaders who are pointing to this moment as more reason to vote in the fall for Democrats and against Republicans. That's the approach derided as telling people to just, quote, vote harder. And as the president said earlier today, with your vote, you can act. And you have the final word. So this is not over. This cruel ruling is outrageous and heart-wrenching. But make no mistake... Again, 
It's all on the ballot in November. This fall, Roe is on the ballot. Personal freedoms are on the ballot. The right to privacy, liberty, equality, they're all on the ballot. And the only way you can peacefully respond to this is at the ballot box. And that's why this is all about November. On the other side are the people furious about the party's pathetic, feckless response, enraged at Biden for rolling over. Now, since the leak of the draft decision in May, the party's response has been to put on the floor and vote on a bill called the Women's Health Protection Act. Now, Joe Manchin refused to end the filibuster to let the bill come to a final vote. He voted against it anyway, citing how, well, he voted against moving forward, citing how far it expands abortion rights beyond Roe v. Wade. Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski also said they were against it. That means the only vote on abortion rights in the Senate has been correctly framed as facing bipartisan opposition. Now, I happen to think the bill, known as WIPA, is a good one. But it's true it goes further than Roe. Roe basically says that access to abortion is a constitutional right in every state in the country in the first trimester. In the second trimester, states can start laying down restrictions. And in the third trimester, they're mostly free to legislate how they want. And red states and blue states have obviously done that differently. WIPA blocks red states from implementing the kinds of restrictions they've put in place over the years, even though those restrictions were mostly acceptable under the precedence of Roe and Casey. Now, it's nice to have a vote on the best bill progressives think that they could write. But now that we've done that, it's becoming conspicuous that the Senate or House haven't voted on a simple codification of Roe v. Wade in general. And, you know, in general, the public message from Dems has been that that's what they want to do. They want to codify Roe. And more than 10,000 people get pregnant every day. Something like 1% of pregnancies are ectopic, which means they're doomed, and those pregnancies are essentially require an abortion to protect the life of the mother. So codifying Roe and giving people in red states the ability to get an abortion if they need one is a matter of life or death. Now, why the Senate hasn't voted on codifying Roe is itself an interesting commentary on our politics today. The pro-choice movement is now organized into a centralized coalition called Liberate Abortion, and basically all questions of strategy, tactics, legislation, protest, funding, you name it, have to be run through that coalition's leadership. And the Liberate Abortion Coalition is absolutely not okay with legislation that would let red states ban abortion in the third trimester. That's an understandable position for an activist trying to expand the realm of what's possible. But as we speak, Many red states have already banned abortion in all three trimesters. Of course, the Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is free to put a bill codifying Roe on the floor, even if the groups, as they're called on Capitol Hill, don't approve. But if the groups are hostile to it, it undermines the political upside for Schumer. And if Democrats are serious about codifying Roe, they have to show voters that there's a path toward it happening. If a more moderate bill like than WIPA could get, say, 52 votes, that makes it a bipartisan vote to codify Roe, only stopped by the filibuster. And it tells voters that if they can get one or maybe two more Democrats, cinema being the wild card here, they really can do away with the filibuster and pass this legislation. They could theoretically make that same argument with WIPA, but it has the feel of one of those bills that Democrats only vote to support when they know it won't become law. Now, if the, if the bill we in the media are talking about simply codifies Roe and it has Republican support and just needs to get around the filibuster, that's real. It probably won't get done in 2023 since Republicans are poised to take the House, but it would be well within reach after the 2024 election. 
And here's the brutal reality. By then, the court's abortion ban will have led to the needless and tragic deaths of a lot of women. In Poland, for instance, after an abortion ban there, there were two high-profile deaths of young women, and people poured into the streets in protest. Putting names and faces to the tragedy brings it home for people. Women have certainly already died as a result of abortion restrictions before now, but that was while Roe was still technically the law of the land, so people didn't pay much attention or connect those deaths to the movement to ban abortion. That'll be different next time. And if Democrats have made clear they have a bill to codify Roe or something similar to it and really have the votes to make it a reality, then they can legitimately urge people to vote harder because their votes could make a real difference to real people. And Emily, did you expect Democrats to put a codification of Roe on the floor and put Susan Collins and Lisa, Lisa Murkowski in, you know, on the record in support of that with Democrats? Were you surprised to not see that happen? Or what's your sense of the political strategy here? I'm kind of surprised, but also not, because they have had opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to codify Roe. From Obama, I mean, even before Obama, they had the opportunity mm. to do this, and, and they never did it. And what's even more, I think, if, if you're coming from the, the pro-choice side or the pro-abortion side of this argument, they have always known Roe was on shaky ground, right? Even Ruth Bader Ginsburg was like, this might not be sustainable as a, uh, as a, the Supreme Court might not always be willing to accept this. And time and time and again, they use voters. They say, you know, we're all in favor of this and they don't do anything about it. And obviously I'm on the other side of this debate, but it happens on many different issues. It's not just abortion. Mm -hmm. They constantly use different, especially cultural issues as wedges and ways to get their votes and they, they do nothing about it. So I, I mean, I think Congress has gotten exceptionally lazy um, and they just frankly don't do much. But in a sense, I was surprised by this, just given how central I think the, the issue is. Yeah, and back when uh, Obama had a supermajority for about nine months or so, he had 60 votes in the Senate. Now, a bunch of those were not you know, champions of abortion rights, to, to put it mildly. That's true. But they were all okay with Roe. They're all pro-Roe. Exactly. So it feels like that, that at, at a minimum, was an opportunity to say, let's just do this, mm -hmm. you know? The Supreme Court at the time was really, you know, moving in a, in a more progressive direction. So, what, you know, there wasn't a sense that they were going to overturn Roe anytime soon. But still, why not put it, why not put it on the floor and just put it into law? No idea. It would, and what, how, how would the politics look from the Republican perspective if they had managed to put Roe into place, put it into practice? And now they have to actually pass legislation through Congress. Yeah, I, in, order, I, in order to ban abortion. Right. I, I mean, I think uh, Congress or state legislatures, and I, and I think Collins or Murkowski. Well, they couldn't do state legislatures. In other words, if, if they codified Roe, it would supersede, oh, supersede yeah. Mississippi and Alabama and Texas. and Right, right. And then until that happens, they can right. use the mechanisms of the state. But if uh, Collins and Murkowski are, are probably correct that it's politically expedient for them to have a vote in favor of codifying Roe, um, I think that's, that's probably true. There's a question, and I do wonder, because this does seem inexplicable to me, and I'm, I'm curious as to what you think. Um, I wonder if they're worried about Manchin and Cinema having to take these really contentious votes 
I don't know, but that's one of the only ways that I can explain why they wouldn't be pursuing this when they do have, I mean, in order just to support Roe, codification of Roe, they won't bring something to the floor when they have, they have a slim margin in the House. There's no question about it. And maybe they are worried because a lot of their most vulnerable House members are in purple districts this cycle. Do you think maybe that has something to do with it? No, because I think that, well, take them one by one, cinema, it's not a problem for her at all. Um, her yeah. only the only oh, thing totally. the only thing that's a wild card about her is she has this weird thing where uh, she says that getting rid of the filibuster would be bad for abortion rights. Well, it's like okay, well that ship has sailed. Rose gone. Like, what are you talking about? So she's only a problem on the filibuster. Manchin, I think his voters have known for a long time uh, that he's supportive of Roe, that he's he's pro-choice. So I don't think that would be a terribly difficult vote for him. He's not going to do the filibuster, right? And so no this way. would be a next year or next, you know. He might not even be around after 2024, or he might be president. But yeah, well, it doesn't explain why they, they wouldn't bring a bill in the House, though. Um, well, so I think the House is like, well, we don't need to because we've done we've done WIPA, uh, and I and I so they've already done a a more aggressive codification of Roe. They've done Roe Plus, right? And I, and they think that swing voters in in purple districts, most of them suburban, are benefited politically mm-hmm. by by having done that. Like Cuellar was the only. Democrat who voted against this. What, the, That's or, right. Okay, that makes sense, actually, because yeah. I was going to say, they, are there people they wouldn't want um, to have to take a vote for specifically codifying Roe? But you're right that it was they just yeah. it was just Cuellar. Right. And they already did it even more than codifying Roe. I, I think some of it goes back and goes back to what we were talking about a couple weeks ago, that a lot of these progressive organizations, particularly in the repro space, um, are are facing all of this internal turmoil, mm-hmm. and a lot of the kind of staff and a lot of the mid level leadership at these organizations, as well as this leadership at some of them, um, just think that it would be a a betra- an unforgivable betrayal to pass a law that allowed red states to you know enact restrictions on abortion, mm-hmm. and then it would call into question if you well if you if you are willing to you know, carry out that kind of betrayal. Uh, what else does it say about your leadership of this organization? And then it creates more uh, in, internal uh, turmoil. And, you know, I've talked to congressional aides who've said that they've seen the internal dynamics of these organizations kind of push them to more aggressive and extreme positions publicly right. as a way to kind of balance out what's going on inside the organizations. And so they, then they just say, hmm. you know what, it's either whip or nothing. Mm. And it, I mean, I guess that worked in the House side. The strategy was successful. Right, and because it, it didn't matter also. Like, yeah. the, the ha- still, they're, they're, I mean, they're willing to give you uh, whatever vote you want if they think it's not going to become law. Yeah, and I, I actually remember being pretty surprised by that vote because there are a lot of vulnerable Democrats up this cycle that are in purple districts. Um, but, and I think that speaks to how those groups have been able over the last 10 years to push the Democratic Party left on abortion to the point where mm-hmm. you only have Cuellar um, be, being the lone person against that. But I do also think the filibuster is, as you point out, very relevant here. I remember saying last week, I was like, if this isn't what gets Democrats to get rid of the filibuster, Nothing in the near term will. And right. I feel like with case in point, right. it, that has been proved over the past week. There seems to be uh, the same. It doesn't seem like the will to get rid of the filibuster has meaningfully increased post Dobbs in the last week. Right, especially since it's all comes down to Manchin. Just one dude. Right. And he's like, no. Yeah, well, that's absolutely true. Well, Ryan, thanks so much for that radar. We will have more rising right after this. 
This week, the NIH hosted a meeting on gain-of-function research. A reporter at U.S. Right to Know, Emily Kopp, is here to discuss what came from that meeting. Emily, welcome to Rising. Hey, great to be here. And so, so yeah, tell us about the how did this meeting come about, and how how significant is it? What what did you what did you hear there? Yeah, so this is an advisory group to the National Institutes of Health. It's called the National Science Advisory Board for Biosecurity. It sort of grew out of um, the shadow of the 9-11 attacks the Bush administration was very worried about. Anthrax and weapons of mass destruction and surge billions of dollars into NIH to deal with biodefense and set up this group to advise it on those issues. But as concerns about bioterrorism have faded and, you know, advances in the fields of synthetic biology have progressed in leaps and bounds, the purview of the committee has turned from bioterrorism to biosafety. In other words, what sort of research on deadly pathogens is too risky to do, you know, poses unacceptable risks. Um, And there's this concept called dual use research of concern. Dual use meaning this research advances scientific knowledge in some way, but if it fell into the hands of a bad actor, could be used as a bioweapon. And I think what we saw at the most recent meeting was these two camps um, that sort of always coalesce around this issue. Um, One is the biodefense side, which sort of has a more is more approach. So more maximum biocontainment labs, more research on these deadly pathogens, more um, projects, that sort of thing. And then we have the biosafety camp that essentially says you can't unring a bell. A virus souped up in the lab only needs to get lucky once. And we really saw that tension on display during this most recent meeting. Now the NSABB actually began reviewing regulations um, in January, 2020 and Even then, experts like Mark Lipsich at Harvard and Tom Inglesby at Johns Hopkins were saying the current regulations are not adequate. And then this whole COVID-19 thing happened and that was put on pause. And now we're revisiting some of these same questions in a very different world where a lot of the lapses in biosafety were were laid bare in in a really tough way. We learned the hard way. Yeah, and you know, obviously, there are a lot of people with stakes in their ability to have gain-of-function re- research uh, legal and funded. Um, but I imagine there's been momentum shifts over the course of the last two years, over the course of probably even the last year. You mentioned the the tension between both sides of this question. Do you sense that there is any? There, there's been a shift in the balance. That there is any momentum for the side that's saying this is the, the safeguards are not adequate at all. Emily, I would love to say yes, (laughs) but I think it's really uncertain. And that's why I think meetings like this are really, really critical because the side of the debate that says, hey, it is a very real possibility that the worst pandemic in a century resulted from a lab accident. And it's very possible that that lab was funded by NIH. In fact, it definitely was. Um, But we've seen intense pushback um, in in the mainstream press on Twitter <laughs> to the idea that um, virology needs to be regulated more stringently. And also we've seen another surge in research funding 
for virology. And so we could very well see even more maximum biocontainment labs being built out of the COVID pandemic without more clarity around what exactly caused it. Um, That's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. On the other side, you know, you do have advocates saying, kind of looking around and saying the status quo of the last two decades since 9-11 with this focus on biodefense has not served us very well. You know, I think one striking example of that is when the pandemic started, we had a national stockpile full of anthrax vaccines and no PPE. Um, so, so yeah, I think this is definitely a rich time to be revisiting some of these questions. And to me, it is still unclear which way it'll go. Let, let's talk about some of that lack of clarity too and bring up some of your, your recent reporting. So you, you've re, you wrote uh, re- recently or you uncovered that Ian Lipkin, who was a, a co-author of, a, of the, the kind of the most consequential paper that related to the lab leak in the early days, the proximal, who knows the proximal origin paper, turns out to have had a previous uh, conflict, a, a role with EcoHealth Alliance, which was the one that was the kind of the pass through funding this, this Wuhan lab. Uh, so can you talk a little bit about who the, Dr. Lipkin is, how you, un- how you uncovered this relationship and what it says about the early stages of our debate about whether it was a natural origin or, or a lab leak? Yeah, I mean, it's really hard to overstate the impact of this paper. Um, So this appeared in Nature Medicine in March 2020. Um, There was a lot of politically charged discussion around the origins of COVID. And this was sort of the paper that um, scientists and journalists would point to and say, this is preposterous. It could not have resulted from a lab accident. Um, And a premise of that paper was that if you are a virologist working with um, viruses in the lab, you'll probably work with a backbone um, that is familiar to other scientists and researchers. And this new virus, SARS-CoV-2, doesn't look like anything that we've seen before. Um, And what we've learned over the, you know, past couple of years is that there was this nonprofit whose entire mission was to uncover new novel unknown viruses. And it was working closely with a lab at the epicenter of the pandemic. And so the fact that one of the co-authors of this enormously influential paper did not disclose his own partnership with EcoHealth Alliance, um, I mean, it just completely undermines the central premise of this article. and and I worry that people <laughs> won't take a second look at it. Um, and this sort of solidified elite opinion that the lab leak theory was crazy, was a conspiracy theory. Um, and I hope we can take a second look at this paper and and yeah, look at the conflicts of interest there. Yeah, and you know, that's such a, a good uh, catch because it gets to the stakes that different people have. And it may seem to people, I mean, certainly this is not my uh, reporting niche, my area of expertise. It does seem wild that so many people in uh, the medical community are so conflicted when it comes to their interests and when it comes to the stakes they have in this very specific debate, but very consequential debate. And the thing that gives me like anxiety about it is, we, this could. There's nothing that's to say that this couldn't happen again at, at any moment. Um, and I wanted to get your take on how quickly or how slowly 
things are, are shifting. Is this such a, a massive infrastructure that already exists that to even sort of get at it is a gargantuan task um, that would take a, a decent amount of time? It seems like it already is as this debate is playing out. I, I don't feel like we really have time to have this lengthy, this lengthy back and forth about the ethics and the appropriateness of this. Yeah, I mean, I think a symbol of the issues that you're talking about is the fact that the leader of the NIH's Infectious Diseases Institute remains Anthony Fauci, someone who may have played an undisclosed role in writing this paper, who um, oversaw funding to the Wuhan Institute of Virology, who's really a true believer of the more is more camp, more biocontainment labs, more research on dangerous pathogens is a net good. Um, and so if we don't see accountability there, I'm, um, I guess, a little bit more on the pessimistic side that we won't see um, potentially more um, consequences of dangerous virology. But I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it would be useful if Democrats would start paying attention to this, because when Republicans, if Republicans take over the House, Next year, they're going to be they're they're going to launch hearings on this, and if they can be bipartisan hearings, mm -hmm. looking looking at this consequential issue, it'll have so much more of an impact on our ability to kind of do this type of thing safely than if it just becomes like a partisan show. Are you seeing any movement at all among Democrats on this question? The short answer is no. <laughs> um, you know, I think uh, I saw someone pointed out that Anthony Fauci was featured in a DCCC ad. Um, you know, uh, this debate has unfortunately been really politicized. And, um, and that's unfortunate because this is a debate about whether, you know, we want um, the Pentagon to be funding biodefense infectious diseases research. Um, 20 years after, you know, concerns about anthrax attacks and um, weapons of mass destruction. I don't think that should be a, a, you know, a purely Republican issue. I think that should be a bipartisan issue, so. Yeah. It should be a bipartisan no. Uh, <laughs> Emily, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Great reporting. Yeah, thanks for having me. Sure, and we'll have more Rising right after this. Stick around. Well, the media has forgotten what happened in Flint, but the Michigan Supreme Court has wiped out charges against former Governor Rick Snyder, his health director, and seven other people for their role in the Flint water scandal, saying a judge had no authority to issue indictments. So a reporter with Status Coup, Jordan Sheridan, joins us now to weigh in. Jordan has been covering this since the beginning. Uh, Jordan, this was somewhat expected. First of all, why was it expected, uh, and what what ruling, uh, what was the rationale uh, that the Supreme Court used to, to uh, let, let Snyder go here? Yeah, uh, for viewers that don't know, there was a uh, original Flint water investigation for three years starting in 2016. Uh, then when the current Attorney General of Michigan, Dana Nessel, entered office, she uh, overhauled that investigation. She fired the special prosecutor and restarted from scratch uh, as part of that new second investigation that started in 2019, they actually 
uh, used a pretty rarely used uh, process of a one-man grand jury, which is basically just a judge who uh, issues the indictments. And a one-man grand jury, in this case a judge, issued the indictments uh, for willful neglect of duty against Governor Snyder, as well as crimes against the seven other defendants. And the Michigan State Supreme Court, uh, their ruling was that uh, that violated the Constitution uh, the state constitution of Michigan, and that a judge can issue uh, subpoenas and search warrants, but not an indictment uh, against uh, the governor and the seven other defendants. So basically, uh, on a constitutional technicality, in my view, the charges were dismissed against the governor and the seven other defendants. Yeah, and so what do we know? If even Rick Snyder is being, you know, legally he's getting off on, as you describe, a, a technicality, what do we know about his culpability here? What do we know about what he knew and when he knew it? Yeah, uh, I've reported over the years, including uh, for Ryan Grimm's The Intercept, uh, that the governor's uh, and his chief of staff, health department director, uh, there was an avalanche of phone calls between the three. Uh, six months after the water switch that prosecutors concluded was the governor himself helping to cover up the deadly Legionnaires outbreak, which killed a lot of people in Flint. Uh, we also know that uh, the governor's uh, top officials in his health and environmental department, their phones were erased shortly uh, before the launch of the Flint criminal investigation. Uh, we know that the governor uh, refused to hand over key documents and briefings uh, that were delivered to him to prosecutors for years. Uh, and we know that the governor uh, per perjured himself to Congress, uh, claiming that he didn't know about uh, the Legionnaire's disease until January 2016, when evidence exists that he knew about it 16 months earlier. Finally, we know that uh, the original Flint water investigation was building an involuntary manslaughter case against the governor. Uh, but like I said, they were fired by current Attorney General Nessel. So there's a lot of evidence against Governor Snyder. It's a real uh, uh, head scratcher would be an understatement why uh, he was only charged with neglect of duty, which is a misdemeanor, and why uh, these other facts uh, were not uh, uh, included in possible more severe charges against Snyder. Has, has Nessel ever given a rationale for why the use of this one-man grand jury and what are the, what are other, what are others uh, guesses as to why she would have taken this approach rather than a normal grand jury? Well, uh, in fairness to her, if you actually believe it, uh, she says she recused herself from the criminal right. investigation. Uh, so she appointed uh, two prosecutors and says she her fingerprints are not on it. Uh, most sources and legal experts uh, don't actually believe that. Uh, but the theory behind the one-man grand jury, uh, Nessel criticized her predecessors that she uh, fired that it was taking too long. The investigation was already three years uh, and they wanted to expedite it. So using this one man grand jury uh, in their argument could speed things up in terms of uh, charging more people and actually getting the cases uh, to a jury because the original uh, investigation and prosecutors, there were year long pretrials, which were some of the longest in Michigan history. Uh, the one man grand jury skips the pretrial uh, process and just goes straight to the indictment. So, um, frankly, in a nutshell, uh, the current attorney general erased three years of investigative work. Uh, she cleaned house of the special prosecutor and a chief investigator who, in his previous uh, 
time had been instrumental in bringing down the Gambino crime family in New York. She fired that investigator and used this, again, rarely used device, the one-man grand jury. So she's got a lot of uh, questions to answer. You know, MSNBC and others love her, have her on uh, for more um, January 6th and issues related to taking on the Republicans. But the Michigan media, the national media have not questioned her on, A, why did you fire this whole team in 2019 that had already charged 15 state and city officials? And now, you know, why did you use this process uh, when, according to the Michigan State Supreme Court, it violated the Constitution? Now, some of this might feel like old history to people that are following it or, or haven't followed it super closely. Um, but if you do follow it closely, you know that it's certainly not over. The consequences were not fast or rapid or as quick as a news cycle for the people of Flint. Jordan, what can you tell us about the continuing fallout in Flint? How does this, uh, how is this very much an ongoing crisis in Flint? Yeah, the best way I could explain it is Flint has had kind of an eight-year pandemic uh, when you're talking about COVID, but it's it's a slow burn. When you're dealing with heavy metal poisoning, uh, you don't die right away. You get sicker and sicker as the years go on. So I've been there almost 20 times. Every time I go, residents that I've gotten to know, they're either coming up with coming down with new ailments or they've died. Uh, we're talking cancers at uh, relatively young ages with no family history, liver failure, kidney disease, uh, all sorts of autoimmune issues. Uh, residents are getting sicker and sicker every time I go there. Uh, within, within the last year, I've spoken with residents in person. They're showing you rashes they're still getting from the water, despite uh, the state of Michigan and the EPA claiming the water is now safe. Uh, they do not have uh, Medicare for all. They had a short-term Medicaid expansion that is up. Uh, so uh, medical bills are, are mounting. And I mean, most uh, most infuriating, all the pipes haven't been replaced after eight years. Uh, they still have busted pipes and the residents' home plumbing, the interior plumbing has not been touched. So there's real questions regarding claims the water is safe and residents uh, are, are dealing with, uh, you know, more and more health problems on top of a pandemic. And uh, sadly, you know, aside from a few outlets, uh, the media really has moved on from this. Uh, so it, it really is Flint residents eight years later kind of still out for, the, you know, fending for themselves. And are there any remaining avenues of accountability for Governor Snyder here? You know, it's I'm not a lawyer, but there are uh, statute of limitations in Michigan for involuntary manslaughter is, is 10 years. Uh, so. There's still time uh, if 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 a prosecutor was to bring those charges. Nestle and her prosecutors are claiming, you know, saving face that they're going to, you know, try to recharge uh, the charges that were just dismissed through whatever process the Supreme Court of Michigan says they have to take. But it's hard to believe after the governor, who's, by the way, worth two hundred million dollars and has an army of attorneys after these charges are dismissed, that they would be successful in recharging him unless new evidence uh, mounts. Uh, so, you know, technically they could recharge him with similar crimes or more severe crimes, but we're talking eight years later, you know, witnesses, memories fade. Um, so uh, I think it's going to be an uphill climb for uh, Dana Nessel, the attorney general and her team to recharge the governor and these other officials with serious crimes. And, you know, the, the residents of Flint I've spoken with are, uh, you know, it's a mix of fury and sadness because, you know, imagine this happening to you being poisoned and eight years later, no one has been, you know, brought to justice. What about the perjury charge? It seems like that one is just kind of ignored no matter who's testifying to Congress. 
uh, nowadays? Well, as uh, as I'm sure the Hill talks about often, the Democratic Party uh, doesn't really seem to want to fight for much uh, <laughs> after after I broke, you know, several of these stories we mentioned, uh, including in the Intercept. I reached out to the House Oversight Committee, who uh, Snyder came in and perjured himself to, uh, and you know they gave me kind of a canned statement that our reporting, uh, you know, troubled them and they'd look into it, and that was that. I, I followed up after more revelations and never heard back. So. Technically, uh, the Democrats still control uh, the House and the House Oversight Committee. Uh, they could use many of the details from my reporting and elsewhere to bring Governor Snyder back in. Uh, the late Elijah Cummings, before his death, uh, was pushing to bring Snyder back in. Actually, former Flint mayor uh, Karen Weaver was on the record that the governor uh, at Governor Whitmer's uh, inauguration, Governor Snyder asked the former Flint mayor, get Cummings to back off of uh, investigating me. So the House Oversight Committee can bring Snyder back in, question him on his claims, particularly on that he didn't know about the deadly Legionnaires outbreak uh, until January 2016, which evidence indicates he knew about it 16 months earlier, did not notify the Flint residents when there was time to save lives. Uh, so I, I would ask uh, the House Oversight Committee, uh, Chairman Maloney, why they haven't, Chairman Carolyn Maloney, why they haven't brought Governor Snyder back in because I do believe perjury is still a federal crime. Sort of. Yeah. <laughs> Depends on who you are. Yeah, if you care. <laughs> Jordan, uh, great reporting. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And we'll have more Rising right after this. After 18 days of a national strike in Ecuador, an agreement to reduce fuel prices by at least 15 cents and fulfill other popular demands has been reached. This just after President Guillermo Lasso barely survived a motion of no confidence. International editor of El Ciudadano, Ciudadano media platform, Dennis Rogacic, is here to tell us more. Dennis, I pronounced both things incorrectly. Please correct me. <laughs> How do I say your last name? It's Rogacic. Perfect. Um, and, and thank you so much for, for joining us. If you could just break down this recent development um, for viewers, that would be great. Certainly. Uh, yesterday, the, an agreement was reached between uh, the government of, of, of Guillermo Lasso and the Confederation of the Indigenous Nations of Ecuador, or OCONAI, as well as other uh, social organ organizations that represent uh, other indigenous and Afro-descendant nations across uh, Ecuador. Now, this agreement was brokered by the um, Ecuadorian Episcopal uh, Conf uh, Conference, and it basically it basically involves a sort of a consensus that has been reached between between the two parties. We have to remember that during the last 18 days, uh, Ecuador uh, Ecuador experienced mass protests and strikes, uh, road, road blockades, organized by Kunai and other indigenous nations who were who were demanding that the government uh, do do something uh, to fulfill the 10 popular demands that they had. Among them were a significant reduction in the costs of uh, petrol prices. As well as uh, the need, the needs to increase the uh, healthcare funding, the need to uh, substantially uh, improve uh, security in the country, uh, as well as other issues such as um, such as uh, improving labor rights and of, and of course the, the um, guaranteeing the, the protection of uh, some of the indigenous uh, lands uh, which have been which have previously been subject to mining and oil uh, exploration 
The final agreement that has been reached uh, yesterday effectively effectively builds a kind of a road roadmap for for the for the government to follow. As a, the government did agree to reduce the uh, costs of uh, petrol by 15 cents. That's for both diesel and unleaded fuel. It is also uh, it, has, uh, it also promised to implement new laws that will protect uh, indigenous lands uh, from from mining and from oil oil exploration. It also promised to increase the uh, spending on on some of the social programs, uh, um, as well as uh, Re, as well as reevaluating its budget in order to meet the demands for uh, for increased healthcare spending and increase on uh, say secure on uh, improving security uh, as well. Uh, now, one important point that must be uh, that must be mentioned here is that uh, the leaders of the Konai, specifically President of the Konai Leonidas Isa, did state that the uh, that uh, their side, uh, the various organizations, uh, will establish a kind of a, like a watchdog uh, commission for the next uh, 90 days in order to supervise the implementation of the promises made by the government. And if the demands are not uh, being met in the, in the manner they agreed upon, the national strike will resume and the protests will, will, will continue once again. What, what was the national strike like? You hear you hear a lot of talk on some corners of uh, Twitter here in the United States. What we need what we need is a general strike, though, you know, with 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 no sense of how that would actually be be organized. You know, how how did they pull off the the organizing of this of this uh, strike, and what was the effect on the the general politics? Uh, now, Konai. Itself is it's a it's a um, it's an organization which I would say has decades of experience in uh, this in, in this sort of thing. Uh, this this is this is an organization which had uh, previously which was previously able to remove through a mass popular uprisings uh, very various presidents which uh, implemented neoliberal policies. So that's uh, that's President uh, Jamil Mahwad in uh, 1999, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, as as well as President Lucia Gutierrez in 2005, both of whom implemented uh, very very strong austerity measures and a uh, powerful neoliberal uh, agenda. Uh, but when we talk about the logistics of this particular uh, strike, it's interesting to note that uh, even even though the first uh, protests, first mass protests, uh, ro road blockades and um, uh, work stoppages began uh, throughout the region of the Amazonia, as well as throughout the um, I say the mountainous region of, of of Ecuador, which kind of cuts through through, through the middle of the country. Uh, this is this is where the majority of the of the um, country's indigenous uh, population uh, resides. Now, this the, uh, this this began. I say this began being concentrated mostly mostly in rural areas, but uh, throughout the throughout the throughout the days after the uh, strikes commencement, it's grew to also include uh, the major the country's major cities. That's the capital Quito, uh, Cuenca, and eventually reaching uh, Guayaquil, that is the, the megapolis uh, on, the, on the coast there. So it, it kind of grew pr progressively with um, uh, one, with the, uh, say with the leadership of Leonidas Isa, uh, the, pres uh, the president of, of Conay, who, uh, who, who, who led a very strong organizing campaign but also also the response of the government has been quite quite violent much more violent than expected as six protesters have been killed uh, during the clash uh, by the by the police um, 
during various let's say clashes between them between the between the mass protests and the and the authorities but also the arrest of Leonidas is a uh, on day two of the strike really put a lot of energy uh, into this as uh, so it actually um, really helped to mobilize mobilize the people to continue on uh, with this so in the end I believe this agreement was reached uh, because uh, the, the, government, the government saw that uh, you know this strike really could go indefinitely with uh, with the kind of leadership and with the kind of uh, mood and the kind of atmosphere and the force that was behind it. And the uh, you know when when Putin invaded Ukraine in February, you know that had come after a, basically a, a year since we'd been seeing significant inflation around the around the world. And and I thought at the time, given what was likely to continued, you know, it was, give, it was going to continue to drive up wheat prices, bread prices, fuel prices around the globe, that this summer we'd see a lot of this sort of thing. You know, each country would have its own particular causes for the uprisings, but at, at the root of it would be some, you know, uh, hostility toward the way that the, the changes in the economy and inflation were making life un, unbearable for them. We, ha we haven't seen that as much this summer as I, as I thought that we would, what do you think? What, what do you think the difference was in uh, in Ecuador versus versus other countries? Although, of course, you know Pakistan and elsewhere, or may, maybe we are seeing it as just not being covered a lot here in the American media. What what what's your what's your read on on how Ecuador differs from other countries this summer? Hmm. I believe Ecuador is different in a sense that uh, there is a tradition of uh, say mass popular uprisings that are related to uh, you know economic issues such as fuel prices, just f uh, food prices, you know poverty and uh, inequality. Uh, we have to remember that uh, in the last uh, twenty in the last twenty two years, uh, three <clears throat> three presidents were removed from power by mass popular indigenous uh, uprisings, uh, where. In 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 those cases, in those cases, the say the cost of living, yeah, yeah, the cost of living, and also uh, say just the overall economic situations were the key were the key ingredient, uh, so uh, so to speak. So this is definitely so Ecuador. I uh, say is definitely um, is definitely is definitely a, a country where the. Uh, where the people have grown have grown have grown accustomed to organize and mobilize uh, in the face in the face of you know huge economic crisis when they see and when they when they see that the that the present government isn't just doing it, well one not doing anything to ele elevate their problems but two is actually implementing the kind of policies which which are exacerbating the problems which they already have since we have to remember that the current government of Guillermo Lasso is also implementing. Um, the conditions of the IMF loan uh, that were um, that was uh, that was uh, that was basically implemented by Mrs. Lenin Moreno, but it has but it has now also been um, I'll say this uh, conf uh, confirmed, which is now being implemented uh, uh, by uh, by Lasso. So this is yeah. a so the, the the protest in Ecuador, I would say, is, a, is a kind of the continuation of this uh, of this uh, revolutionary tradition of the country. Fascinating stuff, Dennis. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you, Emma. And stick around. We'll have more Rising right after this. President Biden says Americans will just have to stomach high gas prices, quote, as long as it takes to beat Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Here he is speaking on the matter in Madrid yesterday. 
If we do these things, it's estimated we could bring down tomorrow, if they, Congress agreed and the states agreed, we could bring down the price of oil about a dollar a gallon at the pump in that range. And so we could have immediate relief in, in, in terms of the reduction of the, of the, uh, uh, of the elimination of temp temporary elimination of the gas tax. And so I think there's a lot of things we can do and we will do, but the bottom line is, ultimately, the reason why gas prices are up is because of Russia. Russia, Russia, Russia. The reason why the food crisis exists is because of Russia. Russia not allowing grain to get out of Ukraine. No, it's because you've presided for decades over a completely flawed system. Um, Brian, this is, there are two levels of this, the, po the politics and the substance. The politics is abysmal to the point where even Democrats are starting to realize the Putin pike price hike line, um, which, by the way, he's, he is correct that the, this is related to Russia. There's no question about it. Um, but the, the politics of it, blaming Putin when there is more that he, there is more to be done. There's certainly more that he could, um, there's certainly more that he could do or that he shouldn't have done in the past. This is not helpful in the midterm cycle. And then secondly, uh, in fact, I think it's probably extremely difficult, especially on the House side, Democrats running for reelection. Secondly, this on the substance, he is not he's not entirely correct that it's quote russia 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 there are steps the united states can take or should have taken differently uh, and i just don't know if anybody's buying it well i mean gas prices are up oil prices are up 40 percent since putin invaded like that's it's it's a very real thing now now some of it is related to our sanctions and that was the that yeah. was the question that had come from the reporter so it's yes, it's 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 Russia that invaded Ukraine. It's the United States that that sanctioned Russia for invading Ukraine. And so then the the question that he was asked, you know, what you know, should we roll back these sanctions to give relief to uh, the American Americans at the pump? And so the point he's saying is, no, you know, we're going to keep those sanctions in as long as it takes to to beat Russia. And so that that particular that that's a particular part of it. Um, I, I think that the I, I've seen a lot uh, from conservatives, people saying, just open up American energy. That's what that is. <laughs> just drill, just drill, baby, drill. Like yeah. if, if you had just done Keystone, which is Keystone XL, which means X means export, mm -hmm. uh, limited to exports, that's Keystone XL. If they, if, and you know, whether it would even be up and running yet, uh, I'm not even sure. But it, that, that's a, like, that's a small addition to the, the global, global supply. I worry that our inability to think of these questions outside of partisan terms is making it impossible for us to actually understand the world. Like, I feel sorry for people who are like, the whole reason that gas prices are up is because Joe Biden won't let our uh, our patriotic drillers just drill in America. And if they if you know, that's and that's the reason. And I understand on a surface level why they would see, OK, there were low gas prices here in 2020. Uh, then they elected Biden and now there's high gas prices. And so therefore, it must be because we elected Biden that gas prices are high, forgetting that, well, 2020, the entire global economy was shut down. Oil was at, if you remember, like negative two dollars a barrel yeah. for a while. It was like zero. Like yeah. people, because there was, there was you you couldn't buy a, one of these tankers for free because you had to park it somewhere, and they were just the ports were just backed up with 
you know, excess capacity when it came to fossil fuels. Then the economy starts going up again, and boom, you see this, you see this massive uh, spike in, in energy costs and the idea around the world. And so the idea that if there was just, you know, if, if Biden was just nicer to oil companies here in the United States, that gas would be back to $2 a gallon, I think is going to just be a rude awakening for the next time that there's a Republican in the White House who has like, and just like, just drill in the White House lawn if you want. I don't care. <laughs> and they're going to find that gas prices are still high. You don't think that, I mean, I guess, so you would probably dispute how much drilling could be done in the United States in the interest of the environment. But you don't think that, it, let's say, conservatives are, get what they want and open up America to drilling that would have a, a substantial, uh, a substantial effect on the price yeah. of oil. Yeah, we're at something like 95% capacity already here in the U.S. So like what more, like there's not that much more that can be done. There aren't. But in the near term, I feel but like Bi- that would Biden, a- Biden didn't come in in 2021 and shut down a whole bunch of drilling projects. The only thing that he shut down was a pipeline that doesn't exist. Like it wasn't as if Keystone XL was already producing oil and and pumping tar sands down to New Orleans and then shipping it out. And then he stopped it from happening. Like all of the low gas prices that everybody was so excited about in 2020 during the pandemic were happening without Keystone XL on online. So like it's like so how did taking Keystone XL, how did stopping it from going online you know, radically spike gas prices. But he like, made it, the regulatory environment more difficult for people domestically, did he not? No, what, what's, what made it more difficult is that uh, the, just the general cost of all of these operations was getting so high. Now, now that gas prices are that much higher, I, he, 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 barely, like, he, he barely, he was like, I'm not doing any more uh, permits, but there were like thousands of unused permits already. And that's why the left was like, well, <laughs> what we wanted you to depermit these things. We wanted you to stop these projects. And he's like, well, I can't do that. And so he, he, just, he has basically allowed as much drilling as, as Trump did. Uh, it's, just, it's, it's just different rhetoric. And so changing the rhetoric, maybe you can go from that 95% capacity up to 100% capacity, but that's not going to have a, a huge impact. I think bigger in the long term, and this is why the partisan nature of this, it makes it so hard for us to talk about actual solutions, would be bringing Iran and Venezuela online. Yeah, 100%. It's like... Well, and that's what I meant when I said he presided for decades over a failed and flawed system. And I still think in the hypothetical, like in the near term, while you're waiting out what's happening in Ukraine, which is a decision that the United States is making, um, and I think he likes to, and and I'm not saying it's a bad decision, but it is a decision. And I I do think in the near term, there could be an an alleviation of the severity of the hike, but you're completely right. And on that note, liberal world order started trending after White House director of the National Economic Council said this on CNN. Or to pay $4.85 a gallon for months, if not years, this is just not sustainable. Well, what you heard from the president today was a clear articulation of the stakes. This is about the future of the liberal world order, and we have to stand firm. But at the same- Brian, that gets to your no. point. Right. Well, he, he, this, this, right, that, that this 40% increase or whatever it is at this point is about beating Russia, is about, and what he means is liberal democracies, that this yeah. is, these are liberal democracies who are facing off against authoritarianism in a struggle for the future. And that if you want to win that struggle, 
then yeah, it's going to cost, uh, you know, and you're going to sanction a giant oil producing state. Now, I, I can I can play plenty of arguments that these the sanctions aren't the way to go, that this is now becoming a regional war between Ukraine and, and Russia, that the United States doesn't need this this heightened level of kind of mobilization mm-hmm. around. Um, but that that's the point that he's trying to make there. Yeah, and but the reason that we have the status quo relationship we do with Iran and with other countries that puts us in this this precarious situation that we're so dependent on other economies and wars in other parts of the world for what happens in our pocketbooks is because there are stakeholders that the liberal world order is responsive to that keep things the way that they are. Right, and there's nothing there's nothing liberal about Saudi Arabia. Absolutely not. Or the Arab Emirates. Well, women can drive there. Yes. It's pretty liberal, Ryan. Yeah, there you go. Some women can drive there. Yes. Uh, so, right. So if you're, if you're allowing Saudi Arabia into your, into your liberal world order, <laughs> then uh, let's, you know, let, let Venezuela and Iran in too. Uh, and then you can, now, I, if, he, if, if they're really going to say, look, uh, you need to suck it up for $5 a gallon gas uh, for the good of the world. At least you'd hope it'd be around climate change, but, but <laughs> yeah. no. Although they try, Macron tried that, and others have tried that. That's not the path forward. Like you can't like crush crush the working families into exactly. oblivion for the for their own good, and be expect expect to be rewarded for it. Well, exactly. Not, yeah. And who gets rewarded at the same time? Who, while they're being punished, the people who get rewarded are also special interests that are being rewarded as part of these contracts and these deals. Um, that even if they are companies that are going to help us transition, they're still major corporations and they're still funneling a whole bunch of money to the top into special interests. But people who think that there's some button that a Republican could come in and press and all of a sudden, Drill. like they're, they're drilling all over the country and it would immediately go right in your gas tank and prices would go down. Oh. It's just a fantasy land. Uh, and I, we'll, you know, we'll, we're very likely to find that out so, you know, sometime soon. We'll see. Well, that does it for us today. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, which is a lot of people, uh, more and more, we're also available anywhere you listen to podcasts. We hope everyone has a safe and happy 4th of July weekend. And we will see you all next Friday for another edition of Rising Fridays. All right. See you then.